about compulsive behaviors, which sounds similar to obsessive compulsive disorder, but stick with us because it's going to be different. So last week we covered addiction and we talked about, I guess I would say more of the physiological addictive substances. So drugs and alcohol primarily. Mm. So this week, we're going to delve into behaviors that are sometimes labeled addiction, and they're really often mislabeled. So we'll start by breaking down that differentiation on what is truly an addiction and what is just more of a compulsive behavior that we don't like, but should still be changed. It's not a good behavior, but it's not an addictive behavior. Right. And I think in some ways it's a matter of degree, but let me just explain the reason why someone like me, a psychologist would be more concerned about the definition or in, in our world, the, criteria in which you you know you have to meet certain criteria i think i read that mm-hmm. last time yeah you uh, did. the dsm-5 and the reason for that is so that when in our field if i say okay this person has an addiction then we all know what that means or mm-hmm. we all know that it, he that that person fits within you know that framework and what happens in you might call it pop psychology or mm-hmm. you know in normal life people are using the word addiction without reference to those particular criteria. And so we don't know what it means. And often what I found in my office is people will come in and they'll label something an addiction, either that they don't like or that um, they're uncomfortable with. And I think the reason they give that label is because it's a lot more negative than say a compulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. And so one of the main addictions or one of the main differences, addiction is a broad term that's used to describe, you know, that dependence or that process by which someone becomes dependent, usually on substances. You know, we talked, Mm -hmm. I think we talked about alcohol, drugs, uh, we talked about opiates Mm -hmm. and that dependence on that particular uh, substance is so important to them and they can't get off it that they'll they'll engage in behaviors like they, they'll lie, they'll steal, um, they'll do anything in order to get that drug. It affects mm-hmm. their relationships, it affects their work life. And so it's pretty all encompassing that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're addicted. Now, in contrast, then a compulsion is a more narrow term that is used to describe an intense urge to do something. And so often we aren't going to get into OCD, right? but certainly compulsion is a part of OCD. But in the case that we're talking about, it's, you know, having that desire to do something that crosses over the line into what you might call unhealthy, or you might be doing it too much, or, you know, maybe it's a problem for your spouse but it doesn't fall into that particular category of addiction or the definition of addiction. And so I want to be clear on the reason that I'm kind of a stickler for that, but if it's mm-hmm. an addiction, then it has to meet the the criteria. Otherwise it's right. something else. And <clears throat> I want to be clear. It doesn't mean that these behaviors aren't problematic off, you know, right. a lot of times they are. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's an addiction. And so I think it's important for people to use the right term and call it what it is. And because an addiction then sets it, sets the person on a course that is different than if you were going to talk to them about a compulsion. Let me give you an example. And I, th- I may have said this last week. 
the people listening will know I have a terrible memory for what I've said. Uh So one of the things that's happened, I'll just talk about people talk about sex addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that in my work with people over all the years, I have seen people, I think they've been men mostly. I've seen a few who I would say probably meet that criteria of being addicted to sex, Mm -hmm. but certainly not for all the people who have come in and said, uh, my husband's addicted to sex. That's, I mean, it's not that at all. But what happens is if you label it addiction, then you can set up a treatment center. And so the treatment centers then can charge, I don't know, thousands of dollars a week for someone who has been labeled as a sex addict. And in fact, um, I, I worked with a client a couple of years ago who had been labeled a sex addict by his employer mm-hmm. and in all the in all looking in the literature there is not a diagnosis there's not an accepted diagnosis of sex addict okay it just doesn't exist yeah but yet we persist in saying someone's addicted to sex and we persist in then sending them to treatment centers mm-hmm. i think if we were more honest we could say okay there's some behaviors that are problematic you could probably get some help for that yeah but I think it's really such a negative label when it's applied, uh, when it doesn't have to be applied. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think in some ways it's economic. It's about money because I can charge you a lot of money if I tell you come to my inpatient treatment center mm-hmm. and I'll help you with your sex addiction. Right. And I would imagine that if someone has been labeled a sex addict, there's probably pornography involved. And if you're looking at pornography at work, or oh if yeah, you're, or oh, or yeah. if you're or if you're engaging in masturbation at work, that's really highly inappropriate. And if you feel I need to do it, or you feel like you can't help yourself, you definitely need help with that. But is that necessarily labeled, or is that necessarily worth labeling it addiction? So I think that's a really great example mm-hmm. uh, because I would say it's not an addiction. It is okay. certainly a very problematic behavior yes. that you can't stop the compulsion either to do that in private or do it in the workplace. And, you know, sadly, yes, I've run into men who've done that and mm-hmm. and there are always very negative consequences yes. for that, but I wouldn't label it an addiction. And so a great example is, so you think about what is, what's the difference then in labeling a compulsion? I think the, with addiction, which we talked about last week, and I'll just remind our listeners that we I mentioned shame. Shame is almost always a component of addiction. Yeah. But I think it can also be a component of compulsive behavior. But then if you label it addiction, there is certainly going to be shame. And mm-hmm. what, you know, anyone who works with addiction, addictive behaviors, um, you know, AA, would say to you, shame, that nothing good comes from shame. Right. Uh, now, guilt is different. <laughs> guilt okay. um, is yeah, often, I can see that. Yeah. guilt is often very helpful, but shame is different. So we can talk about some, what behaviors do you think we should start with as far as talking about compulsive behaviors? Because there are, there are quite a few. Let's, let's start with pornography. Okay. And there are, and I know there's a lot of differences around it. And I know in particular, Utah, a lot of people view it as immoral. And I'm sure there's also people who view it as acceptable in the right circumstances. And it also depends on what you consider 
pornographic too. You um, know, right. <laughs> that's the old that, Supreme, that's the old uh-huh. Supreme court thing is, you know, you'll, yep. you'll know it when you see it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, ex- exactly. And so I think, I think pornography would be a really good one to start with because in some ways it's fine for some people. I mean, some, there are lots of men who certainly even married men whom their wives are aware that occasionally they use pornography and they're okay with it. And then there are certainly wives who are extremely uncomfortable with it and who would be very, very upset to find their husbands using pornography. So I guess maybe it comes down to part of it is is, in pornography is preference. So, I mean, but let's talk about that when pornography is a problem, I would guess that when, someone else around you or a loved one is uncomfortable and thinks that it's a violation of trust would be my guess. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And so I certainly see this often in my office with couples. And the uh, I want to say at the outset that I, as a therapist, it's really important for us to stay away from the moral question. So it's not a right. question of morality for us because mm-hmm. You know, if what whatever I feel about it in that moment isn't important, it's exactly. whatever they're bringing into it. And so, mm-hmm. I've certainly seen couples where, if they're both okay with it, then they talk about it almost more in passing because it's not right. an issue. Uh-huh. But what happens if one of the partners is uncomfortable with it? Then my advice to them is always: you go to the place where you don't you don't use it. And it's not like there's a, I mean, either you do look at pornography or you don't, there's no in between there's, it's not like there's some sort of compromise that can be had. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's an either or. And so if one person, usually the wife who is uncomfortable, then you work to move the couple to not use or to the, the husband to not use that. Right. So when does it become a problem? And I've certainly seen it be a problem because it can cross over and get really close to addiction. If that's what you're using, say your free time, it can take your time away from your family. It can mm-hmm. um, nowadays, uh, you know, it used to be you'd measure it by how much money they spent on it. Okay. And nowadays that's not really a, an accurate predictor because most of it you can get for free on the internet. It's not something you have to pay for anymore. Although there are some, if if you cross over into uh, what I would call those sex chat lines, mm-hmm. then that's a very different issue because then, you know, if you're, I think that doing that behavior can be compulsive and it can then cross over into an addiction pretty easily. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's easy for it to cross over into that addictive territory. But one of the things if they're spending a lot of money, spending a lot of time, they don't go to work, they miss family obligations, things like that, then it's clearly crossed over into the, you know, realm of addiction. But if Mm -hmm. every once in a while you call up a sex chat line, it might be a compulsive behavior or it might be a sexual fantasy, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't, doesn't fit the addictive label. So I think that one of the things I wanted to talk about is when, when do you know it's going to be a problem? And one of the mm-hmm. books I wanted to mention is called Man Disconnected. And the author's name is Philip Zimbardo. And Philip Zimbardo is kind of infamous, I'll say, rather than famous. Okay. Infamous. He has a pretty famous 
he's from Stanford and people often know about the Stanford prison experiment because it went way off the rails and they even made a, they made a movie about it. It went so far off the rails. Anyway, he's the guy who did the Stanford prison experiment. And so he wrote this book that I think is really helpful. I would recommend it for any parents of boys, mm-hmm. but here's what he said. I mean, the book is really helpful, but the, a takeaway that I could give the listeners right now is this is when he believes, well, it's, he lumps, he puts pornography and gaming, you know, video gaming mm-hmm. kind of into the same category. Okay. <clears throat> and he believes that it becomes a problem in two conditions. One, when it's done in excess mm-hmm. and in isolation. Okay. So if you think about those two things in excess and in isolation, that's when it really becomes a problem. And I think also you're moving from, you know, it's hard to know when, where do you actually move from compulsive behavior into addiction, Mm -hmm. but you're flirting with it at that point. I think if you're doing it in isolation and to excess. And so for parents of, um, I think, especially young boys, yeah, I think it's important for them to be aware of that. And, and we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about what parents can do about that. And maybe mm-hmm. another episode might be helpful, but it's really something that we need to be aware of yeah. uh, because it's way too easily accessible and it tends to sexualize our children way too early, uh, way, way too early. And so that mm-hmm. in and of itself is a problem. It's a bit of a side problem, but I have seen certainly clients um, actually, my wife, who deals more with adolescents, mm-hmm. you know, has certainly seen it start young and then it becomes a real problem. And so can it be can pornography be an addiction? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I'm going to say, yeah. yeah, is it is it always? No, it wouldn't be. But that's similar to alcohol use. Right. If you're drinking, if you have a beer, is that an addiction? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking, you know, two 12 packs a night, that's, that's an addiction and that's a problem. And so in a lot of ways, it's a matter of degree. Okay. So does that answer your questions about pornography adequately, do you think? Yes, I did want to circle back to one thing. So it seems to me what you're saying, and maybe your wife would agree, that young men being exposed, so teenage boys being exposed to pornography is pretty harmful. It's It's not a good thing. Yeah. It is. Okay. And and the reason is, I mean, here's the difference. So when I was growing up, you didn't have the internet and you had Playboy mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. And right. And if you were to go back and look at the Playboy magazines from when the 60s mm-hmm. and compare it to pornography now. Oh, yeah. They're, they're not wide. even they're not even in the same universe. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's one it's so easily accessible. Yeah. And the the stuff that you can see lead you down that path and it and it tends to habituate you mm-hmm. to you know certain desires yeah so yeah i think it's a real problem i've certainly seen i saw a young guy who there's a a real issue called I don't know if it's called pornography induced erectile dysfunction. It might, oh, maybe okay. I just, maybe I just made that up, but uh-huh. it, that's, it, it describes it pretty well that what happens is if you're masturbating and orgasming too excessively to pornography, mm-hmm. it really changes your ability to have an intimate, satisfying relationship with a real person. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And I, th- so- and I think I've heard that before too. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that is certainly a real problem. 
I, it, it can be reversed. I mean, it's not, okay. I mean, it takes some work. It's not something that is permanent by any means, mm-hmm. but it's real. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, when I see people in the, in my office, if they're okay with it, it's usually not an issue. If they're mm-hmm. not, then that's when we talk about it. Right. And, but I, but it's different if we're talking about young men and mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not just young men. I mean, uh, females are also interested yeah. in that and oh, yeah. uh, kind of access. So I think what I'd say to parents is, you know, be aware of what your daughters are doing as well. Mm-hmm. It's uh, probably less likely, but still, I think you need to be uh, aware of it. Very harmful, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So let's switch gears and let's talk about food. Okay. And- that's a good one. Yeah, because, you know, food is something everybody needs. We've all got to eat. See, that's a problem is when it's something that you really need. It's hard to think of it as an addiction, right? I need to eat uh-huh. this every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that that's when it can really become a problem. And so, like you said, we all got to eat. And so it can be really hard to label it an addiction. But I think it's it's the exact same as, you know, alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex, when it's in excess, when it's too much, it's a problem. Right. And so I think that you can think of, I mean, kind of the classic is overeating or bulimia, Mm -hmm. which is eating and purging or anorexia, which is restricting what you're eating. And we would, we would put all three of those under the heading of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important when because that causes all sorts of health problems either way. Yeah. yeah. Certainly bulimia does, anorexia does, overeating does. Mm-hmm. But often, I mean, there are various reasons why that starts um, for for young women. And it's often young women, although nowadays with body image issues, mm-hmm. more young men are starting to express those disorder that disordered eating. But one of the things that uh, I'll just give some of the things that can cause it, there's certainly a high correlation with childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and disordered eating, especially for women, but it can be also for males as well. Also, the idea of, this is interesting, having for women a, a domineering or, you know, a really harsh father Mm, is a there's a connection there and i and so if you think about what you get by controlling your eating it's one of the few things you actually can do like if you feel like you're in the world and you you don't have a lot of control so what if you have a controlling parent or controlling father telling you always what to do and you 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 know you have no power mm-hmm. except the one thing you have power with you know that you take with you all the time is how you eat mm-hmm And so that's often how it develops. Mm -hmm. I think with overeating, it can be a little bit different because, you know, there are all sorts of hormonal things that happen, especially if you're eating a lot of carbs and Mm -hmm. sugar, then I think that those hormonal things help us feel good. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like a drug high. Mm -hmm. And so um, you have to figure out, okay, what am I self-soothing about? Mm-hmm. What is my anxiety about? Because often overeating is about anxiety. But when does it fall into an addiction? Hmm, I don't know that I've ever 
I don't know that I've ever seen it labeled an addiction. So yeah. I, I'm I'm going to step back. It might be, but I think it's more compulsive behavior. And mm-hmm. I think the reason is you can't you can't have abstinence with food. Uh, yeah. And I think another thing, too, with why it might be hard for it to be labeled an addiction is because it's so easily accessible. And right. it's and not only is it easily accessible, it's socially acceptable. That's you right. know, I mean, you don't blink an eye if you see someone eating candy. You have no idea how much they have eaten, you know, I mean, and so I think I think that plays a big part into it and why it can't be labeled an addiction. But I would imagine when it could become addictive is if, again, you know, you get to the excess of it's like with gaming and pornography, excess right. and done in secret. Yeah, no, I agree. And bulimia is almost always done in secret. There's yeah. always, mm-hmm. And there's almost always a component of shame right. around bulimia, not necessarily around anorexia. Anorexia is very different because often the people who are anorexic, they may realize it, but there's in some ways a certain pride that goes along with it as well, that mm-hmm. they can control their eating in such a way that they are so skinny. Mm-hmm. I think there's also shame around overeating. And mm-hmm. so people who become obese because of overeating in our culture, uh, they're certainly obese. And, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but in our culture, it's one of the few things that's in some ways it's accepted to uh, mm-hmm. have bias against you know, they're because they're not treated well. And there is a bias against people who are obese and it shouldn't be. And I wish it were not because those people have their own issues that they're trying to deal with and they're suffering from. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go back to, is it problematic? Yes, absolutely. It's problematic. And I think it's problematic in terms of relationships and health, especially mm-hmm. health. I mean, none exactly. of those is is a healthy behavior. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're risking an early death with some of these things. And that's very real, especially with anorexia. But mm-hmm. with bulimia, it destroys the esophagus and there are all sorts of problems that come with it. So you can be treated, there's, there's really good treatment for that as well. Mm-hmm. I think the harder one probably to treat is um, overeating. And so it's very hard to do that. And the reason is your physiology actually changes. And so you can get someone who maybe has had a problem with overeating for years and they become obese. The physiology actually changes to where I think, you know, my current understanding is that really the only way to change that is with the operation, the gastric bypass uh, surgery actually does change the physiology. Hmm. But okay. uh, because a lot of them, a lot of people who are, who are dealing with obesity, they're really trying, mm-hmm. but their metabolism doesn't cooperate at all. And, yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is they think, oh, this person just has no self-control. Very often that's not the case. Mm-hmm. They might be trying very hard to control it, but their body's not cooperating. I've also known people who have developed sleep apnea. And right. once you develop right. sleep apnea, weight loss is extremely, extremely difficult because your body is no longer getting adequate sleep. Right. And You're absolutely you, right. Yeah. So I And there are all sorts of health issues related with sleep apnea too. So Right, exactly. But I mean, and often it's a vicious cycle because it mm-hmm. starts it, it often begins because someone starts to gain weight. Right. And then they develop sleep apnea and all of a sudden it's a vicious, vicious cycle of trying to to lose the weight and being unable to lose the weight because you're not sleeping. 
So I think really what it comes down to it is compassion. Yes. We talk about that a lot. Yeah. And empathy. Yeah. Empathy is, I don't think it's ever, ever okay to belittle someone because of an addiction or a compulsive behavior. You know, those people, they need love and compassion and they need right. empathy and, and they need someone to see them. I mean, like you said, shame is never helpful. It never no. does any good and mm. it's not going to help solve the problem. And I think a lot of people think, well, if, if I shame them into changing, you're never going to shame anyone into changing. No, it just makes the problem worse. It really yeah. Does. Yeah. And I think there's a compassionate way to talk to a loved one and say, I can see what's going on and I'm concerned and I would like to help you yes. through this. Yeah. But, and, and this kind of goes back to what we talked to a little bit last week of it has to be their decision and you're never going to help someone, no matter how much you want to, no matter how much you think you might be able to, you are never going to be able to help someone who's not interested in changing the behavior. Right. I think a lot of people who deal with those eating issues, mm -hmm. they really want to change, but yeah. the shame yeah. prevents them from talking about it. And we judge them so harshly mm -hmm. and that tends to lead them to isolate mm -hmm. and where they aren't going to get out and get the help. But I think it's a real mistake for us to assume if we see someone who's overweight, that they either don't want it to be different or they aren't trying. Mm -hmm. My experience is they mostly want it to be different and they're trying. Right. So my third child or my third delivery of my, my last baby was very traumatic in that it was prolonged towards the end. And it was just, it was a really drawn out, painful experience. And in a lot of ways, I didn't deal with it properly. And to top it off, to make matters worse, he ended up, my son ended up in the NICU afterwards. And so it was this traumatic process. And what I started doing is I started using sugar to, and you described it as self-soothe. And so oh. I, I would eat sugar in excess and I would eat too much sugar because it helped me feel better. And I wasn't dealing with and processing my emotions. I was just mm. using sugar. Right. And so it's that brain reaction, you know, the increase in serotonin, I believe is what it is. And so there's a real reason why you feel better and why, mm -hmm. and, and it's easy. And in some ways, you know, it's a parallel to alcohol use or mm -hmm. pot use because mm -hmm. you're getting a very similar, you know, reaction, but the, it's a little bit more socially acceptable in mm -hmm. a lot of circles, especially yeah. in your circle um, mm -hmm. to not drink and not use pot, but, mm -hmm. you know, to sugar. Oh, yeah. But I, you know, I don't know that whatever, do we have sugar addictions? I suppose. I mean, I think, I, I don't know, I still think that's a very strong term to put yeah. to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's more this uh, compulsion that to eat the sugar because we feel good. When, mm -hmm. if you feel like you're eating too much sugar, and like a lot of these anxiety issues, is you figure, you try and figure out, okay, what's the anxiety about? And then what are health, <clears throat> what are healthier ways? Mm -hmm. to handle the anxiety, meditation, exercise, mm -hmm. walking, connecting with people, those types of things uh, mm -hmm. would be more important. And so I think you can change it. But then um, I, one of my doctors, or one of my daughters is a physician, I think I've mentioned, and she talks about how if you think about it, evolutionarily speaking, 
in some ways we're programmed to really eat fat and sugar because sugar gives mm -hmm. us the energy and the fat we store up so that in those times of famine, we aren't going to die. And so if you're on mm -hmm. the savannah, you know, 20,000 years ago, you would want to be able to store up that fat and you'd, you know, getting sugar gives you that burst of energy so you can run after the whoppity so you can kill it <laughs> and eat it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So we are, we are bred, you know, we've evolved to really like sugar and fat. There's a reason for that. Now, the problem is in our culture, I mean, typically we don't have famines, mm -hmm. you know, there's a food is easily available in excess. And so in some ways, part of it is biological, this biological drive that we still have to get ready for the famine. Mm -hmm. so, so I, you know, I understand it, but I think we could control that. Yeah. So before we wrap up, let's talk about tips uh, to overcome compulsive behaviors. Okay. And and I've got, let me just mention two others that are pretty prominent. Gambling mm. and shopping yes, are yeah. two other compulsive behaviors that I often mm -hmm. see. And often, you know, they do cross over, especially gambling. I think it's pretty easy to cross over into that addictive label. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily start that way. Shopping, I've heard people labeled, you know, shopping uh, addicts. I don't know that I've ever seen that. Mm -hmm. I think the other one that I hear now is you're addicted to your phone. So, yeah. But again, I don't think it's an addictive behavior. It's, I think it's just one of those labels. We definitely see an excess yeah. of, oh, yeah. of phone use. And I, oh, I yeah. That's problematic, I think, very much in our society. But but for most yeah. people, if you take it and put it in a drawer, you're okay. You're mm -hmm. not going to have, I mean, some yeah. people will have withdrawal, but most yeah. people won't. It's, yeah. just, it's just about setting better boundaries. So mm -hmm. talking about treatment. So I think there are two ways to do this. I mean, if it's, a, well, the, we talked about addictions last week as far as inpatient, but if it's mm -hmm. a compulsion and causing you a problem, then I think the first place to start is doing some real good talk therapy. And the reason for that is because I think if you get the insight into where this comes, then that's more helpful. But I can really say that the best treatment for any of these behaviors is group, is a group okay. process. Okay. Now, the problem, though, you won't, it's hard to find good groups. And the problem is it's hard to set them up because it's hard mm -hmm. to set up eight people who have various schedules and to get them all together who have, who have similar issues because you don't mm -hmm. want just a general group. You want a group that's uh, working on eating issues. And so my wife, Lindy, does a group. She's been doing this, this group for 20 years on Wednesday night that is for, a, for women only. But it's hard to find good groups. But if you can, th that I really believe is the best thing to do. And here's the reason why is because you are with other people. It tends to take away the shame because mm -hmm. in lots of ways we think, oh, I'm the only one who's dealing with this or I'm the only one who, who experiences this. And you get in this mm -hmm. group and you're figuring out, wow, there are other people like me. Let's figure out how to you know, solve this together. Mm -hmm. And so group process is really the best but it's hard to find a good group for yeah. a particular issue. And so before we wrap up, what is your thoughts on, I guess you could call it accountability. And I know with AA and you often have a sponsor and that helps people with accountability. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I guess it would, it would depend on whether or not the person you're being held accountable is shaming you. Would right. And depend so on it. And so I think it works really well in AA and there mm -hmm. are certainly other, what they call 12 step programs mm -hmm. that do that. And so the accountability is important, but those people who are successful in AA have really gone into it and said, I want to do this and I'm right. going to be accountable to you. And there is no shaming. 
as far as I know, in AA. That is not I would a imagine of, not. That is not yeah. a part of it. So accountability, I've certainly seen where people who are not in AA want to be accountable. I think it's a real mistake to make your spouse be okay. the one you're accountable to. It's yeah. much better and more helpful if it's someone else who's outside your home, who you don't have an intimate relationship with. And so, so not that, so not relatives, basically, is what you're saying. Parents, I think, it, I think, it, yeah, I I wouldn't do that because you okay. have to you have to be able to go to family dinners and go to family parties, and if you're there with your sponsor, essentially, yeah, that's not going to work very well. Okay, and so yeah. it's the same thing that I mean, if you showed up to a family dinner with your therapist, that doesn't work very well. No. and so what happens is, you know, if you have that distance. Mm-hmm. where this, I'm, I am working with a sponsor, I am work, working with a therapist, and then I have my life over here with my family, mm-hmm. I think that works better. So I think if you have a trusted friend, that okay. would be the best thing. Or if you get into a 12-step program, I think there are 12-step programs. There's certainly 12-step programs for eating and for narcotics, mm-hmm. certainly alcohol. I think yeah. there are a lot of different, tw- there are 12-step programs for sex, uh, for mm-hmm. sexual compulsive uh, activity. And so in that case, you're going to, if it's a good 12-step program, you'll be set up with a sponsor. So you'll have that okay. accountability. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to any sort of addiction, it sounds honestly like just talking about it can be extremely helpful. It's a, it's the same thing. I think we ended our last podcast with this. It's it's about compa- well you said it earlier, compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Empathy, being able to listen and mm-hmm. not judging them and not mm-hmm. shaming them. Yeah, because people like we've said time and time again, people they want to they want to feel seen and be heard. And-, and we never know what the other person is dealing with. Exactly. It doesn't cost anybody anything to just nope. be kind. It doesn't. And we need more of it. We need more empathy. I totally agree. So next week, we're going to delve into a topic that's kind of relevant. We're going to talk about childhood trauma. And this is a topic we may break it up into two parts. We may not. We'll see how it goes because childhood trauma can be a really, a really big one. Stay tuned for that. And as always, if you have a childhood trauma you'd like to share with us, maybe you've overcome a childhood trauma We would love to talk about that and share that. Or if you're currently dealing with a childhood trauma, we'd also love to talk about it and see if we can't help you a little bit.